Today is the third Sunday of Advent, and we're continuing our series through Romans 8, taking our cue from a book entitled uh, Romans 8, How the Gospel Brings Us All the Way Home. For in the course of Romans chapter 8, we move from the anguished cry of Paul in ch- at the end of chapter 7 to being more than conquerors as we share together in the victory of Christ's reign and completed work. And so it is right and appropriate that we use the four weeks or so of Advent uh, to reflect on how it is that the announcement that the King is born is actually good news for those of us who are broken people living in a profoundly broken world. Today, we'll be looking at verses 9 to 11 of Romans chapter 8. Read with me. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 to 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Brothers and sisters, that is good news. That is good news from our Heavenly Father through His Son, Jesus Christ, by the powerful working of His Spirit to us, His children, in 21st century Flintstone, Georgia. So let us go to Him in prayer. So, Father, we do come with eager, perhaps some of us come even with frantic expectation to this, your word, the word of life, the word that gives life, the word that sustains life, the word that secures life through your son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray that by your spirit, you would strengthen us to hear it to see it, to rejoice in it, be changed by it. We pray it as your children. In the name of Jesus, amen. Ding dong. Ding dong. Ding It's the hap, hap, happiest time of the year. And so it begins. The songs and the carols of the holidays begin. The rings of bells, the happy voices of in-laws and outlaws just outside the door herald tidings of holiday joy. The sounds and songs of family arriving, in-laws, 
outlaws, long-lost cousins, great crazy aunts and uncles, brothers and sisters who haven't the foggiest clue who they are or where they are, strangers, bosses, hustle and bustle, exhaustion. It's a great time of the year. A good, fun, old-fashioned fam old family Christmas. Ah, the tensions of holidays. Family tensions, in-law tensions, gift tensions, timing tensions, Black Friday tensions, driving tensions, tensions within ourselves. All the tensions that we can imagine all packaged up in one short two or three week period in one little 1800 square foot house. So many tensions, so intensely packed. We need a vacation from the holidays. And sometimes the tension is so bad, as I know some of you know, that it is downright excruciating. So excruciating, so thick it could be cut with a knife around the dinner table for somebody has brought up that forbidden topic. You said what? There's the comment, spoken or unspoken, about how we're raising our children. Can you believe they allow that? The look or the comment about, so why aren't you married yet? So painful that we text our friends under the table, I'm dying here, get me out of here! And then we remember the reason for the season. It's Jesus. We can do this, we say. If only I could spend the holidays with Jesus. Now that would be a holiday to remember. But as I have said to a friend before, and as I say it frequently, we really should be careful what we ask for. Because most of us presume that we would love to have Jesus spend the holidays with us. We would love to have Jesus move in and set up his dwelling with us to be our roommate. Wouldn't that be grand? To live with him every day. To walk with him and talk with him every day, 24-7, 365. But when Jesus moves in, we find his dwelling with us unexpectedly and uncomfortably and not infrequently aggravatingly disruptive. For like that friend we thought we would like to go into business with, Jesus moves in and starts doing things and arranging things his way, without consultation, 
he just goes and he eats all the cantaloupe without even asking anyone. Yes, I'm still bitter about that. Of course, he's ever so gracious about it. Oh, Dan, bless your heart. But you know we're going to do it my way, right? There's no arguing with this guy. There's no compromise. What kind of roommate is that? He always thinks he's right. His way is the only way. He's impossible to live with. And the holidays don't even get me started about Jesus showing up for the holidays. That's when Jesus moves in by the indwelling of his spirit. When Jesus pitches his tent, as John describes it in John chapter 1, and he moves his spirit right into the middle of our lives, the tensions that we've learned to live with and that we've become so accustomed to rather unconsciously are now brought to the surface. The tensions between our way of feeling and thinking and speaking and acting in our lives and Jesus' way of feeling, thinking, speaking and acting in our lives. The tension between our way and His way can become excruciating. To be a fallen human being is to live with tension. And when Jesus actually does show up for the holidays, things can get significantly worse before they get better. In fact, in a very important way, it is because Jesus moves into our homes for the holidays that tensions are intensified. To be a fallen human being into whom the spirit of Christ has moved is to live with a much greater, much more palpable, much more visible measure of tension. A tension so thick that it can only be cut with a knife or a spear or a cross. When the Spirit moves in to make His dwelling, to make His dwelling, to pitch His tent in the very center of our lives, it creates tensions between the mind of the Spirit and the mind of our flesh, between us and those around us, between us and our circumstances. Look at our passage. Paul speaks even in our passage. Those who are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. And there you have this tension that he's been looking at throughout chapter 8. He speaks of the flesh in verse 3 twice, and then again in verse 4, and then twice again in verse 5, and then again in verse 6, and then again in verse 7, and then again in verse 8. And he keeps speaking about it as he comes into our passage for the day in verse 9, and again in verse 10. Eight times, ten times he speaks about being in the flesh in this very short passage. And then he speaks about this being in the Spirit or the Spirit being in you. Verse 1 and verse 2 and verse 4. Twice in verse 5 and then in verse 6. And then in the course of our little three verses, 
three times in verse 9, twice in verse 10, and, and twice in verse 11. Thirteen times in 11 verses. Clearly, there is some tension going on here between life in the flesh and life in the spirit. And so it's helpful for us to stop for just a moment and get what is he talking about? Because of course we live life in the flesh. We're flesh and blood creatures in this world. Is that what he's talking about? Well, no, he's using the language of in the flesh metaphorically as a sort of idiom. It's akin to what the preacher says in Ecclesiastes when he speaks of life under the sun. He's speaking of a way of being, a way of living in which we see and evaluate all things, ourselves and those around us and our circumstances, from a highly secularized worldview, which prioritizes to the point of exclusivity only that which is visible and measurable and quantifiable over that which is invisible, immeasurable, and unquantifiable. The great mantra of the secularized mind who is living in the flesh is, show me, prove it, give me the data. For to the secularized mind, only data is real. Nothing else rises to the level of proof or substance or reality. In contrast, there are those who are living in the spirit, living their fleshly lives, as it were, in the spirit. That is, these are people who are seeing the visible in the light of the invisible. They are seeing the visible as but a part of a greater, as yet unknown and unseen reality. They are seeing the visible aspects of their life as a revelation of or a window through which to behold the greater, immeasurable, invisible realities. To someone, for example, who is, do, who is living their life as human beings in the flesh, to use Paul's idiomatic expression, the exhortation, the gospel exhortation to love your enemies or to forgive those who, perhaps even repeatedly, harm you or your loved ones or the exhortation to pray for those who persecute you, these are just simply absurd. They're blind, they're short-sighted, they're foolish. If you really believe that, I have deep concerns and you need to be committed to an institution for the terminally insane. But to someone who is living their life, their fleshly life in the spirit, to use Paul's idiomatic expression, these exhortations are perfectly reasonable. They make perfect sense. For when we look at those we presume to be our enemies, we actually see them as themselves, for example, enslaved to our mutual enemy. 
we recognize that their hope is our hope. We recognize how our mutual enemy is enslaving them by the passions of their own hearts, even as he has and continues to threaten to do with us. And so we find ourselves living with this tension between life in the flesh and life in the spirit. And there is this battle. This tension manifests, this tension arises to the point of being conscious as the disconnect becomes visible between who we are, for example, and who we want to be. Between who we are and who we think we are. Between who we are and who we want others to think that we are. Between who we think we are and who others seem to think we are. The life we have and the life we've dreamt of having and the life we find ourselves in the midst of. And these are just the tensions. These are just the fault lines that we, that we become aware of in our own souls when the Spirit moves in. Never mind the tension between who we are and who we want to be and who the Spirit is calling us and creating us to be. Who we are and who we think we are and who the Spirit thinks we are today and who He thinks we ought to be tomorrow. You add the spirit in and then suddenly there's this whole other layer of tension and all of that is just the tension between the spirit's mind and my mind. Then there are the tensions that come to the fore in the holiday season caused by the disconnect between who our spouses and our children and our neighbors and our in-laws and our outlaws and our cousins and our pastors and our teachers and our bosses and our co-workers are and who we wish them to be. And their stubborn refusal to conform to my desires Maka would love our marriage if it wasn't for her husband. So the expression goes. You see, the presence of extended family and tight quarters over an extended period of time tends to expose all or most of these fault lines all within a very short span of time. And it's a very tense time. It can be a very tense time. And that's why one commentator says, every believer lives in this tension between what he is and what others are and what he will be and what others will be between the now and the not yet. The presence of tension in our lives is not unique to the holidays. Rather, the holidays decrease the space and increase the frequency by which our relationships and responsibilities, conversations and circumstances bring the tensions with which we live every day to the surface, where they erupt like lesions on our faces and boil over onto the stove and onto the floor 
causing all manner of havoc. Our cousin has let the dog loose in the kitchen, and garbage is everywhere. Like someone has said, it's Christmas! We're all in misery! These family tensions are just a part of loving one another. Get used to it. What's one to do? Is our only hope that we just grin and bear it and hope we make it through in one piece? No. What am I to do? How can I have a happy marriage, as one has said to me at one point? Indeed, with all the tensions among spouses and children and in-laws and outlaws, how are we to have the hap, hap, happiest, full-blown, four-alarm, old-fashioned family Christmas since Bing Crosby tap dance with, where am I, Danny Kay? The resolution to this tension that Paul has been looking at makes an appearance in our passage. You are not in the spirit, but, excuse me, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God has made its dwelling in you, and you would not have the spirit does not belong to him, but if the spirit of, but if Christ, that is, the, that is Christ, the spirit of Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of the sin, the spirit, of life, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now listen, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see, the arrival of the spirit, the disruptive indwelling of Christ's spirit is how, in fact, these holiday tensions that cause us to groan year after year are brought to resolution. Throughout, Paul has been saying, in the spirit, the spirit of God dwells in you. The spirit of Christ, if Christ is in you. The answer of the triune God to the excruciating holiday cry of Paul in Romans 7, 24. O wretched family that I have, who will deliver me? O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? The answer of the triune God to that excruciating cry is to move in. Not to pluck Paul out of the family, not to pluck Paul out of the holiday turmoil, not to pluck Paul out of the marriage, not to pluck Paul from his circumstances, but to move in. Move into Paul. Move in with Paul. And to dwell with him. And as we've noted, that creates its own level of tension because suddenly there's that tension between my desires and the Spirit's desires. I want to strangle him. And the Spirit says, no, you don't. No, really, I do. No, you don't. The Spirit somehow doesn't seem to get how tense things are in our families. For when our will gets sideways with the wills of those around us, we find ourselves not 
primarily navigating conflict with them, but actually conflict with the Spirit. Conflict with the Spirit's will who is pressing us to feel and think and speak about those around us in ways that are profoundly offensive to us. Spirit, did you not hear what they said? Did you not see what they did? Yes, I'm well aware of that, he says. We'd rather die than love our enemy. We'd rather cut off our hand than respect and honor and care and serve Aunt Edna. We'd rather choke to death on eggnog than to have Cousin Eddie live with us for a month. That would kill me. That would absolutely destroy my dreams for the perfect old-fashioned family holiday. And that is the Spirit's will for you. And that's why Paul writes here in verse 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. In these most excruciating of tense times, by the Spirit we, have been, we are welcomed into the loving fellowship of the triune God Himself. Notice that. If the Spirit of Him, that is the Father, who raised Jesus, that is the Son, from the dead dwells in you. Do you understand by, that, by the gift of the Spirit, not only are the doors flown open, thrown open so that we can enter into His presence, but we are actually drawn into the presence of the triune God's fellowship. That is the family gathering which we celebrate on the holidays. That is the, is the holiday family gathering by which all other family tensions are brought to resolution. Did you notice that? This is a Trinitarian thing going on here. Spirit, Father, and Son, who have made their dwelling in us and among us and with us. That's a glorious thing. But this is not just Whistling Dixie. It's not just a pretty picture because notice what Paul says. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. Paul is pointing to a real live fact of history as evidence that the triune God, the love of the triune God has been poured out upon us to make us alive and draw us to his table. Brothers and sisters, that is the power of the triune God's great love. So great that it, is, that it is dived into the very depths of hell itself and draws out the beloved. Dives right into the beating heart of our own lives and the hell we sometimes feel ourselves living in order to draw us out. And it is not just a love that reaches beyond the grave. It is a love whose power reaches to the very depths of the grave. The very depths of your holiday tensions. 
Brothers and sisters, this is the power of the gospel that Paul references in Romans chapter 1. This is the power of the resurrection that he references in his letter to the Philippians. It is this power that settles itself by the presence of the Spirit right into the middle of our lives. It is this power by which we find tensions finding their increasing resolution. It is this wonder that we, it is this wonder that we celebrate in our Christmas celebration. It is not that it gives us strength to endure holiday tensions, but to recognize the holiday tensions as the very problem, the solution to which is the birth of Christ. Do you see what I'm saying? The holiday tensions are not the things that ruin Christmas. They're the occasion for Christmas. That's why Christ came. This is the power by which tensions are resolved and bitterness is turned to sweetness. I know for a fact that some of you have sins that you are harboring desperately needing to be confessed one to another, forgiveness sought, forgiveness granted. A fact that seems so impossible, and yet this is the very power of Christmas. Some of you have bitterness that you have harbored and nurtured for years and sometimes decades. You need to lay at the cross. Because this is the gift that we celebrate at Christmas. For you see, when we fail to look at our in-laws in the light of our Father's greater revelation of who they are, then we will invariably find ourselves at odds with them. When we fail to look at our spouses, our children, our co-workers, our bosses, our irritating neighbors, our distant cousins, in light of our Father's greater revelation of who they are, we will invariably overlook them, ignore them, walk over them, and dismiss them and disdain them and use them and manipulate them. But when, by the Spirit, when, in the Spirit, we look at and live with and love our in-laws and spouses and children in the light of who made them, and how He made them, and why He made them, and how much He loves them, it will necessarily and unavoidably bring resolution to the tensions that threaten to rip you apart. So that we don't have to walk out on our full-blown four-alarm family holiday, but can truly enjoy the hap, hap, happiest family holiday since Bing Crosby tap-danced with Danny Kay. For when the Spirit moves in and pitches His tabernacle in the very middle of our lives, in the very middle of our holiday lives, complete with all the tensions we have come to associate with the family and the workplace, we truly are made the jolliest bunch of messed up people this side of the nuthouse. Because in the light of God's revelation and the gift of Jesus, we rejoice with confidence. Not because we and our families aren't messed up. 
Not because we are strong enough or wise enough to stick it out to the end. Not because the tensions aren't real. Not because we are imagining things or making mountains out of molehills. The good news of Christmas is not that it's not as bad as it is. The good news of Christmas is that it's probably worse. But that we live and look and love in the spirit of Christ and by the spirit of Christ. When we see what he has done, when we remember and recount to one another what he has done, it changes the way we look at ourselves and the way we see others. It changes who we are and who we are being made to be and who others are and who they are being made to be. And this is what Paul has in view when he says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. The real family tension at the holidays of those who, with whom, in whom the Spirit of Christ dwells are the tensions, brothers and sisters, between the desires of your heart and the desires of the Spirit's heart, between your political values and His political values. It's not between you primarily and your family members. It's primarily the tension between the Spirit of Him who dwells in you and your own spirit, the spirit of your flesh. We celebrate at Christmas the gift of the triune God's great and powerful love in Jesus Christ, who makes all things, marriages and families and workplaces, new. That's a gift worth celebrating. And so, Father, we pray even as Paul prayed, that you would strengthen us to see that gift and to celebrate it. Especially, Father, in the press of these holiday tensions that get such a bad rap. Father, we pray that by your Spirit you would grant us eyes to see not irritating family members, but the glory of the triune God's great love for us and for them in the gift of your Son. And may we gather together to marvel and rejoice at that great gift. For we pray it as your children in Jesus. Amen.